The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, there is little as sweet as the invitation from Jesus to come to come to him and find life, and then the great assurance, the the reality that, and when we didn't come, you came and chased us down and caught us. So thank you. And now, Lord, we come to you now as your people, caught and redeemed, made new, given new hearts. We still need to come to you, and we come now asking Will you come here, be present, and teach and guide us? Help us understand your word, what's in it for us this morning in this unusual passage, and will you grow us up and make us new again from it? So we need your help. So we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit here in our midst, Father, would you commission him to move in this room and teach and guide We have one passage in front of us, and I'm going to speak one set of words, but it's going to have landing points in a hundred people's hearts, and so that's your work. Please do it. Make it clear and apply it to us and grow us up for our good and for the honor of Jesus, we ask. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I was watching the college football national championship game this last week and saw something that actually probably happens at all football games. The third quarter ended, and the TV cameras then captured players and coaches and then lots of fans in the stands, all at the same time making one same gesture. Can you guess what it was? If you're a football fan, if you're a a football player, a former football player, you've probably done this. Third quarter comes to a close and seemingly the whole stadium holds up four fingers. Four fingers. Signifying what? Fourth quarter's here. Silently sending a message to themselves and to their team, declaring, reminding, We have arrived at the beginning of the end, and this is the hard part. Because by now the shine's worn off this game, we're deep into it, we're all grass-stained and dirty and sweaty, tired and sore, and frankly, it would be really easy right now to just let off the gas a little bit and relax and lean back, quit. But if we did that, we'd waste all that we've accomplished so far, and then we'd lose, and we don't want that. So this is the time to bear down, to focus, to seal the deal, to finish. In fact, that's sometimes, at least in basketball circles, that's sometimes the word that accompanies that kind of a moment, finish. Great start finish. 
The final whistle will blow. The final horn will sound. We know that. We can actually see the finish line from right here, but it's not yet right here. There's still some period of time, some stretch of time between now and the end. As the Bible says, well, it's not yet night. Well, it's still day. We're, we're to work. We're to finish. We want to work well so as to finish well. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Last week, if you were here, you saw verses 6 to 8, and in them Paul describes his death as imminent. And actually he describes it as if it's actually already happening. He's like in the process of being dying. Remember the cup being poured out? His life has come to an end, and we see there that he's modeling something for us, this wise, mature Christian perspective. Life is temporary. Consider your death and see life as temporary and actually see all of this life now that's temporary. It's all a struggle start to finish. It's a fight. It's a race. It's a keeping. That's what verse 7 was about. And it's all done looking forward to the great reward that comes to the Christian when Christ comes. That was last week. That was Paul's testimony to us. His call to consider death and to consider life and to consider what's coming at the end, the, the reward, 6 to 8. And then we come to verse 9, and it seems like he transitions here and maybe kind of switches to some housekeeping items. Various details about some travel stuff and some of his personal belongings, and so we can kind of safely skip over this part, right? Well, no. If we remember what he set up in chapter 3, all Scripture is useful for us, and that means there's something here. So we want to stop and look at this as well. And as we look at these verses in this section, I think what we're going to find here Several helpful elements useful for the Christian to help us finish, and finish well, and really to help us live and live well. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, three observations from this passage, verses 9 to 15, but before I get started, let me read it. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Stop there. Three observations, and here's the first. Finish by holding tight to the Lord in love. Finish by holding tight to the Lord in love. This first observation arises from a disappointing example in verse 10. A man named Demas. Demas is mentioned not only here, but he's mentioned at the end of Colossians and the end of Philemon as a valued fellow worker of Paul's. He was part of Paul's missionary team, traveled with Paul, 
shared in his ministry and in his sufferings. And the fact that he's present here with Paul in Rome at this point, this juncture in Paul's life, things are kind of hairy in Rome right now. And the fact that he's there for some period of time says something about him. He's committed. And then he's not. He left. And there is sin in this. Following the principle of rebuking elders publicly, Paul calls out Demas publicly like this because he's a well-known leader, surely a model to many others in the Christian church. People know him and know what he's like, and he wants, Paul wants to point out something here, a problem. But the main problem, the, the sin here that we need to focus on, is not actually the desertion. As we'll see next week in verse 16, other people deserted Paul too. It doesn't say he deserted the faith, he deserted Paul. It was difficult to be around Paul. People shrunk back from him and, and what he was facing and what he was going through. So we might miss the thrust of this if we think that the problem, that this, the sin here, the thing we need to look at is something that's about abandoning Paul or maybe even abandoning the faith. That's not what Paul is trying to put his finger on. It's the why he left Paul that's the problem. In love with the world. Paul calls out Demas' waffling heart for what it is. Worldliness. Love of and conformity to the world and how it works and what it values. At least for this moment in time, we, we don't actually know how Demas ended. This is the last thing said about him, but we don't know the rest of his life. But for this moment in time, at least, this period, instead of Christ and his appearing being the great hope of Demas' life, like verse 8, what it's supposed to be, instead of him loving Christ and his appearing, Demas is, is looking for his best life to be this life here and now. Demas is looking around, and perhaps he fears for his own safety. Perhaps he's tired of sleeping on somebody's floor and, and the sacrifice that he's enduring. And maybe he wonders about how things are going back at home, and he's worried about the business that he left, and he's beginning to think about retirement, and he would just like to, to play some golf and put his feet up for a moment. Whatever. We don't know. Whatever it is that, that's going on inside of Demas, it's clear that his focus in this period of his life moves off of Christ and off of his kingdom and off of, his, of eternity and onto this world, this life, here and now. Demas, a Christian, fell into worldliness, into sub-Christian living. like we all might be tempted to do. Our Christian hearts, until we are one day crowned with righteousness like we talked about last week and cannot sin anymore, our Christian hearts now are prone to wander. Don't you feel it? We're inclined, we are drawn, we are lured and tempted and tried in this long fight and on this long race, in this challenging world. That's the truth. And if we're honest, we've all been there. Me included, we've all been there. 
The siren song of this world is constant and attractive. We are not strangers to worldliness, and we can understand why one would love the world, because there are offers galore here. There are shortcuts and side roads everywhere on this race. It's true. We're not strangers to being in love with the world. It's not right, for sure. There's, there's sin in it, for sure. But it's also kind of part of our human existence. We're drawn. And Paul points this out so as to say, this isn't right. This, this is not the path that you want to go. This, this is not the way that life is found. This is not how you want to finish don't be, don't be unaware of this. Look. So look, do, do, you, do you know yourself well enough? Do you pay attention to yourself well enough to see when the world, kind of the tentacles of the world are kind of like reaching up and beginning to grab you? When the, the crumbs, the, the the crumbs that would lead you off the trail are kind of like looking attractive to you and you've kind of just wandered a little bit. Do you, do you know yourself? Are you paying attention to yourself well enough to see that when the world begins to grow on you? It happens as time passes and as we go, we go tired of fighting and tired of running. And notice, it happens at the level of love before the level of action. In love with the world. Before he follows the world, he's in love with it first. It happens at the level of love first. What you love then leads you to act. It's very important that we, that we see this and that you pay attention to yourself to notice the ways that you yourself are drawn after the things in the world at the level of affection first. So here's an example of what I mean. Do you love, for example, the affirmation of other people? their approval and their acceptance of you, such that then you will compromise and act in ways that they will approve of. You will say things that they enjoy, even if you shouldn't. Notice, what happened first is that you, you loved and you valued them before you acted. It started in here first. Do you love? Do you find most enjoyable do you think that life is most found in the, in the pleasures offered here in the world, whether they be physical or emotional? In some way, you, you think, that's where I will find life, and I will, I will experience joy, and I will find pleasure in this behavior or in that activity or in this hobby, in giving myself to this relationship. And so then you do that hobby or give yourself to that relationship, but it's first because of what you decided on inside here. Something happening here, a love a drawing, a feeling in the heart first. Now, let me be clear. The things of the world, I very much, very much believe that God means for us to enjoy him and the things of the world that he's given us and made to enjoy God in the things of the world, but not to enjoy the things of the world as God. That's the problem here. Is that who, do you, who do you love? Do you love the God who gave or do you love the thing? It begins in here first. 
So the question really is, do you know yourself well enough to see when your heart is beginning to uh, be drawn on? And something here grabs your heart more than the Lord does. Sorrow lies down that path. God wants us to know that and to not go that way, but instead to finish by holding tight to the Lord in love. Which, of course, since I'm talking about finishing, to pull in something from last week, are you in the fourth quarter of your life right now? Are you finishing right now? You don't know. I mean, if everybody lives till 80, then 60 is the fourth quarter, right? But what if you're only going to live till 40, then 30 is the fourth quarter? What if you're going to live till 20, then 15? You might be a teenager finishing your race right now. You don't know. So what I'm really talking about when I say finish is I'm talking about live. Live. Holding tight to the Lord in love and that we have to attend to this and pay attention to ourselves because the natural drift of our human hearts here while we are still in the flesh is not towards the Lord. It is towards the world. It's the way we go by nature. There's a fight here, lifelong struggle here, to fight to hold tight to the Lord in love. But the good news is that God made us in some way that when we see lovely things, we love. When we see something lovely, we are drawn to it. So the fight really is to see the Lord. So consider him. This God, think with me, this beautiful, creative genius, what would you make of a Lord who would make all of this that we find so attractive and so tempting and are, and are so inclined to resonate with. He who made all these things and made them very good, must he not be better than that? A God who made this and, and, then, and gave us then... A, the type of nature gave us minds and hearts that, that can see and can enjoy, give us tongues that can taste and noses that can smell, eyes that can see and behold the goodness of his creation. He made a creation and he made us creatures who can resonate with us. And he meant and always still means to fix it all free, unmarred, and to join us with it so that we see it and say, wow. That's a creative genius. Good and beautiful, isn't he? Lovely. And more. What of that God, a creative, beautiful genius and a powerful Savior King? who's seeing all the ways that this wonderful and good creation had been kind of uh, twisted, had marred, wrecked, broken. Did not just 
wipe it all up and wrap it up in the towel and throw it in the waste bin, but instead rolled out in response to that the eternal plan to fix it all and improve it. And to fill it with even more glory by powerfully dealing with that which wrecked it, by powerfully dealing with sin at the cross, putting death to death and bringing life to life. He's a savior and a king who powerfully deals with our greatest need. Not only a beautiful and wise creator, but a savior and a king. He's lovely. And he's still more than that. Because he's not just a genius and a creator and a powerful ruling king who steps in and solves a problem, but he's also just remarkably patient and humble, gracious and merciful. He deals with people like us who are falling and failing and fickle, prone to wander. And he deals with people like us. I wish I'd known this song before. Who, he, by coming, what a beautiful thing. That he, he bumps into people like us who have resisted him, who have walked away, who have said, no, thank you. And he deals with us in a kind and in a humble way, stooping to become a human being, to step forward into our lives, to act then to mercifully draw near, to lift up our chins and to open our eyes so that we could see this glorious, mighty, ruling king and this beautiful creator who's so wise. He is vigorous in his pursuit of us for sure, but so tender and gentle. What do you make of a God like that? All those things all put together. Isn't he lovely? Isn't he the one that you need? The one you were made for? Doesn't he offer you far more than the world can and secure it with far deeper promises? And all of the gospel message is aiming to show him off and commend him to your heart as the only hope for forgiveness and for healing and for life and for joy eternal. That's who we're dealing with. The God who is and the God who is good, the God who is lovely, the God who is love. And the God who is certainly going to appear and make it all right. The story ends. It is the greatest story in all of the universe. And it ends with his people fully and perfectly in union with this God, righteous in a world made clean. It's the best story ever. And Demas did not attend to it. 
but he let it grow stale. Great harvest makes great bread. It's so moist and tasty. Bring home a loaf of that. Take a slice of that honey wheat out. Set it on the counter and come back next week. What do you have? Stale. Stale. You might have a little mold on it, I'm not sure, but it will be stale. What I love about it is the sweetness and the moistness, and it will be gone. Not because of any fault in the bread itself, because I did not attend to it. Everything grows stale if you leave it on the counter. It grows cold if you don't stir up the embers. So the fight is not actually to, to try to resist the world, and the fight is not actually to try to love God. The fight is actually to see Him and to hold Him in front of you, this beautiful, lovely one. Because if you don't, the truth that you know will grow stale and the fire will dim. And the lure of the world will win. Finish by holding tight to the Lord in love. He is your life. He's good and lovely. He's real. And he wants you for himself, which is good. Paul did. Demas didn't. What are you going to do? But Paul did, and therefore was in position for the second observation. Finish by leaning into gospel ministry as long as possible. Because it's important. Finish by leaning into gospel ministry as long as possible because it's important. Verse 9, Paul tells Timothy to come to him in Rome and to do so quickly. As he'll say later in verse 21, he wants him to get there before winter, probably because in wintertime, travel in the Mediterranean world became kind of treacherous, so it, the travel window sort of shut down. Paul seems to know that his final trial is not going to be to the spring, so if Timothy can get there before winter, they'll have several months together. So why does he want several months with Timothy? Well, some assume it's because of Paul's personal affection for Timothy and his loneliness after Demas' desertion. Timothy is like a son to Paul, and so he wants him to come for encouragement's sake. Many think that's what's going on here, and of course there is a lot of truth to that. They did have great affection for one another. There's something to that. But I think there's something more here. Look at the bigger picture of this. Paul does not lack Christian fellowship. In verse 21 again, Paul mentions four people by name and then lumps in and the whole rest of the church who send their greetings on to Timothy with this letter. He's in touch with those people. They might have deserted him and not be with him at the trial, like in the courtroom. That's a little dangerous. But they're certainly around him, in contact with him, helping him. And then, back in our passage, we see these other guys named Crescens, Titus, Tychicus, 
Verse 12, they're with Paul. They were with Paul, but they're all gone now, but gone for good reasons. Demas is the only guy who deserted. Everybody else seems that they all were sent away by Paul. They're gone on orders, if you will. The point here is that we should not envision the Apostle Paul as kind of rotting away all alone in this prison cell, sending for a friend who lives 800 miles away to come encourage him. No. Paul's situation is more like one of those that you see in the news and read about every now and then, some big-time organized crime boss who's locked up but running his whole syndicate from jail. That's what Paul's doing. Paul's at work here still. He's locked up, running the whole operation from his cell. He's sending missionaries here and there. He's dispatching people to certain cities to go do certain jobs. And then, notice it says, come to me quickly, because Demas left, I need you to replace Demas. Demas, my trusted lieutenant, he's gone, so I need you to come quickly because i got a job that now only you can do. Somebody with your kind of reputation, somebody that I trust like you. So come quickly. I've got work for you. And notice this, and when you come, Timothy, bring tools. Verse 11, get Mark, bring him, because he's very useful to me for ministry. And verse 13, bring my cloak and bring my books, and especially the parchments. The cloak is just personal. He's going to live for a few more months, and he's cold. It's the wintertime, and so rather than buy one there, since you're stopping to get my books, bring my cloak too. Books and parchments. Maybe two different categories, but I think it's more likely it's a refining statement. The books, that is, in particular, the parchments. And given that material, parchment, how valuable it was and what was usually written on it, it's almost certain that that writing that Paul's after is valuable, religious, probably scripture. Can't say for sure. May well be Paul's copies of Old Testament scriptures or commentaries on them. It also might be other written records of his ministry travels or records of the early Christian church, perhaps even some things about the ministry of Jesus. We don't know. Can't say. All we know is that Paul highly valued these writings and really wanted them along with Mark. And so he called on his trusted friend, Timothy, come to me, bring all that stuff so that present together in Rome at the same time, at the end of his life, before he dies, he'll have months with Mark, Luke, all of his written documents, all of it witnessed by Timothy. What do you think happened in that prison cell for those months? Wouldn't you like to read the written record of those conversations? Maybe you have. Now again, we don't know what happened. But in a book, 
in which Paul is extremely concerned to faithfully pass on the message that was entrusted to him. It certainly seems that he's taking steps to faithfully pass on the message to faithful men who will then be qualified to teach others. The Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Mark, and the, and the book of Acts came from those guys. What do you make of that? I don't know. And I'm not saying. But what I am saying is that what's clear here is that Paul's trying to do something. That's the point. He's still at work. This wise Christian just modeled for us that he finished the race. I fought, I ran, I finished, it's over. That was verse 7. But in fact, like any good runner, he's taking two good hard strides past the finish line. He's leaning into it. So as to be sure to finish at full speed all the way to the end and past. Nobody runs a race pulling up short and jogging out the last 10 steps so that you can stop at the finish line. At least nobody should finish a race like that. I, I think, to be honest, a lot of Christians do. I've run this, I've fought this, I, now's my time. I've bought the world's arguments that the last years of my life are for putting up my feet and taking it easy and enjoying all that I've accumulated here. And I'm going to use my money and my time for myself. I'm not going to say that, but I am. Lots of Christians do that, guys. I think lots of us who are in my, my stage, I think, I, I think I'm not in the fourth quarter, but a lot of people in my stage thinking we're not in the fourth quarter, we're kind of like hoping that's what the fourth quarter is like. <laughs> Paul didn't. Finish by leaning in all the way. Two good hard steps past where you think the line is. Paul's at the end. He said he, he already said, I'm done. Now, for the work that remains after I'm done... He's modeling something for us there. To lean forward, and in this case, lean forward into gospel ministry. That's what this whole book's been about, gospel ministry. You, you may recall if you've been here in past months, whether you're a capital M minister or a lowercase m minister, we're all, if you're a Christian, you're a minister, and that's what God's called us to. He called Paul to that, and he called Timothy to that, and he called every Christian to that. In some way or another, we are about. We've been saved for and left here for and then empowered for the making clear of Jesus to the world for God's honor and because people need him. People need him. It's important. It's the most important thing. He's worth it and people need him. And throughout all this letter, as we've been talking about that, I hope that in some way or another you've been thinking about or perhaps you've asked and God's spoken to you about what are the things, what are the, the gifts, the circumstances, the, the particular interests, what, what are the things that he's placed you in where the gospel ministry 
and you line up. Or maybe you don't know yet. What's he, what's he preparing you for? What kind of interest has he given you? And, and he's pulling you along and developing you and growing you up. And as you pray and look, what do you expect to find? Where is your particular spot in the kingdom work? He aims to use you for his purposes. And that's awesome. Sometimes we in our own language say, if somebody wants to use me, that sounds bad. That God wants to use you is awesome. That God empowers you by his spirit so as to use you is double awesome. So don't pull up short and trot towards the end. Lean in. Lean in. This would be your joy and your delight. Really honoring to him and useful for other people. This is what maturity looks like. Finish. Even doing so as the opposition mounts, which takes us to the last point, which is briefer. Finish by accounting for opposition and hardship with an appropriate eternal perspective. Finish by accounting for opposition and hardship with an appropriate eternal perspective. So verses 14 and 15, Paul again mentions this, this guy, Alexander, who lives in Timothy's neighborhood, and he mentions him so as to warn Timothy. He did Paul a great deal of harm, and the language implies he might have been the one who figured out how to betray Paul in a way that would get him executed. Other people would had made all kinds of accusations against Paul. They hadn't stuck. But maybe Alexander figured out, I know how. And he got him in this situation. Seems like that's what's going on here. He strongly opposed the Christian gospel. So Timothy, watch out for him. And while you're watching out, realize something else. And this is what mature Christians do with the raging of opponents all around. Watch out. We hardly need to be told this, but using common sense, maybe you lock your doors, maybe you make your meetings discreet. Watch out. And strike back. No, it's not what it says. Watch out, rage at them. No. Watch out and entrust yourself to him who judges justly. To use the words of First Peter about Jesus. Watch out, Timothy. Alexander is coming to a point where the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Not us. The Lord will. Alexander does not care about that. Alexander does not believe that. But it is true. And that's good news for us. It's something to trust. 
This gives us a place. This, this is like, this is a table upon which you can set every sort of injustice and every sort of wrong and every sort of hurt and every sort of affliction and even everything that you're not exactly quite sure is that wrong, is that injustice, is that affliction. I don't really know what to do with that. You can put that on this table too and say, Lord, you will judge justly and according to their deeds, whatever that may be, you'll take care of that. And that means... We don't have to carry it. I don't have to get justice. I don't have to make it right. This, this pulls out a, a big old Jenga block out of, the, out of the Tower of Bitterness. What makes us bitter? You get bitter when something should be, but it just isn't, and it just keeps not being. Again and again and again. And resentment grows, and I want to make, but I'm just... I can just take that out and set it over there and say, you deal with that. And if I believe this book, if I believe what I say I believe, I feel actually, though Alexander did great harm to my friend, I fear for you, Alexander. Because I know what that means. And he doesn't. He knows not what he does as he rages and destroys and kills. So rather than being bitter, I can actually weep and maybe even love my enemies. Now, be wise, lock your doors, make your meetings discreet, for sure, for sure. That's common sense. We don't need to hear that. We understand that. But this statement right here says, here's appropriate eternal perspective. Nobody gets away with anything, including Alexander. Leave this to the Lord and lean into gospel ministry wisely and carefully, but keep pressing on. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Don't shrink back. Keep stepping into it, entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. This is really helpful to us when we face all kinds of Persecution, opposition, hate. And it also, I think it's also, if you leave this particular context, I think it's also helpful to a lot of us as we just face yuck. I don't quite know if I can call it opposition or hate or persecution. It's just like the world's just broken. It's just kind of yuck. And I think, I'm only whatever age I am, but I think this has grown in my life and I think I've seen it grow in other people's lives. I think a certain level of bitterness and frustration sets into us as we age and we see like, man, just things are just severely messed up. Simple things. Why can't the traffic ever get sorted out? It never does. Two, why doesn't the court actually settle this issue? Why? Why? And I can't make it happen. And so I'm just, getting, I'm just walking around. I see this in a, a fair number of men, frankly. Walking around just kind of angry all the time. 
because the world is screwed up. And I'm yelling at them and yelling at them and trying to get them and nothing changes and it's just like, so I don't know if I'd call that persecution or what, probably not, but, it's, but there's something that's wrong there and I can say also in a different, slightly different way, this world's not right, you Lord will make it right. I don't have to. It's not up to me to fix them, that, and those. He will. The call to me is to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me and lean into gospel ministry while holding tight to the Lord. That's how you finish. And in fact, that's how you live. I think we see those things here in these verses here in, in, at the end of Paul's life, they are for us in finishing, but they are also for us in, in living. So I, I commend them to you, but above all that, remind you that don't, don't take any of this as, here's my list of things to do. The first and greatest fight is to see the Lord. And he'll win your heart and draw you after him and grow you in trust of him and to give you an eternal perspective that's right and helpful. Towards that end, let me pray. Lord, you are coming soon, and you will bring with you a crown of righteousness for us. Thank you. And in the meantime, will you help us to trust you and will you give us eyes to see you? And will you give us a certain will, a certain vigor to, to fight? To not let the truths that we treasure grow stale. I speak these words, we hear them all in English, and then we have to say, Lord, help. Would you please carry out your good purposes in our lives? by your grace and by your power. Please do that. Make us a people who are after you, who treasure you, who hold tight to you, and who love the world in your name. It's in that name that we pray and say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.